welcome to One Love, One Planet with me, Penny Southgate. And it's the second half of this um, special edition featuring highlights from our Earth Week. Now it's Earth Week on BCFM Radio this week. And if you were thinking that climate change is brand new, think again. This piece is from the 1950s. dangerous questions because with our present knowledge we have no idea what would happen even now man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization due to our release through factories and automobiles every year of more than six billion tons of carbon dioxide which helps air absorb heat from the sun our atmosphere seems to be getting warmer this is bad well, it's been calculated a few degrees rise in the Earth's temperature would melt the polar ice caps. And if this happens, an inland sea would fill a good portion of the Mississippi Valley. Tourists in glass-bottomed boats would be viewing the drowned towers of Miami through 150 feet of tropical water. Foreign weather were not only dealing with forces of a far greater variety than even the atomic physicist encounters, but with life itself. What time is it now? It's real woman time. I know it's cheesy. Today's show is dedicated to Earth Week on BCFM Radio. We've been exploring a lot of topics uh, to, about global warming. So in our show today, we're talking about how girls and women could be most affected by climate change. Well, I have found some um, some information from ActionAid, yeah. which is really, um, really interesting, Grace. Mm. And um, women and girls are more vulnerable to the effects of climate change because... And do you mind if I just read these out? Please do. Okay, so the first one, it says, they constitute the majority of the world's poor who are overall more effective. They are more likely to be dependent for their food and income on the land and natural resources mm. which are being threatened as we speak. They are less likely to be in positions of power mm. and or decision-making roles. And it goes on. They are more likely to be responsible within their families for securing water, food and fuel for cooking and heating mm. which are all being threatened. It is often women and girls, for example, who are forced to walk great distances to find water when local sources dry up. And finally, in developing countries, they tend to be exposed to the negative impacts of disasters, including death and injury. These disasters are becoming more frequent and more severe due to climate change. This is Thank you so Quite much. Profound. It's profound. And I read that article as well. And I think that uh, Mandy has the article as well. And um, so when we look at things like that, because sometimes we feel very awkward in talking things, um, you know, from women point of view and men point of view, it's like excluding men and, you know, just talking about women. But this is serious. It's not happening in our country here in England. It's happening elsewhere. How do you feel about this, ladies? How, how, what is your 
What are your thoughts? Before I read it, I absolutely had Freak no out. idea. <laughs> well, I had no idea because I was thinking, how is this? How is gender relevant? This mm. is affecting everybody. Everyone, Surely yeah, that yeah, this is. It doesn't matter who, how rich you are, yeah. how poor you are, mm. where you come from in the world, your mm. eth- ethnicity, your gender. Mm. It affects. We're humans. It mm. affects all of us and animals. You know, mm. but. When I read this, then when I looked at this mm. list and that, that Sherry's just read out, I thought, oh my gosh, yeah, of course, you know, in these countries where there are already issues yeah. and that are related to other things, politics, religion, you know, being probably the main two mm. of why women are in certain situations. Of course, when things like this happen, it's going to have a different effect and a, probably a more f- profound effect. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt really upset after reading this. And when, mm. you know, we always try and uh, ch- relate to these things with our own experiences, I thought, I, I'm lucky. I have no experiences I can relate to mm. because I am in this fortunate position. I was born here. I haven't experienced any of the things on that list, you know. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so I just thought this, yeah, it does need to be raised. It does need to be highlighted. We all should be thinking about it, mm. especially women. We need to, you know, mm. our sisters, we need to stick together. And, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm glad that this is, this is the topic today. I'm glad that it's been raised mm. because it absolutely did not occur to me mm. before that. In rural Africa, women and girls are expected to fetch water and they have to go long distance to fetch water, which exposes them to domestic violence and other gender-based violence. So I expect world leaders to ensure that natural resources are more accessible for rural women and girls. And the effect is triple when it is women with disability or a girl with disability. So I urge leaders to ensure that natural resources will be more inclusive and natural resources will be more accessible for everyone by keeping their promises related to the climate finance. And um, and in that clip, she she was basically talking about women being action, uh, sorry, agents of change. Yes. <clears throat> you know, mm-hmm. and and having you know the Barbadian prime minister and others that I saw yesterday on. COP27, yeah. I was just so into So many women mm. got up there and spoke about their countries. I was so inspired by this. Mm. But I, I have to go back to ActionAid, and mm. um, I'll read it as best I can. But they say, research shows that when women participate in decision-making at national and community levels, mm. they are key to effective climate change solutions. BCFM. And it's the final day of Earth Week right here on BCFM. So I have a challenge for you, Mikey Rods. Oh, here we go. I am going to try... I don't like your challenges, you know, because they're always biased in some way to make you look like an idiot. No, I am going to try and make you greener than you already are. Is that all right? Green as in green with envy because, like... No, 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 green with envy because of my beautiful looks. No, I don't mean that. (laughs) Even Marvin Rees has been supporting us. Here he is. Hello. Um, it's Marvin Rees, Mayor of Bristol, saying hello to all BCFM listeners during Earth Week. Uh, just encouraging everyone to do all they can in their personal lives. My commitment is to get fit as well as uh, relieving pressure on the planet. I'll be running into work or riding my bike every day. 
It's the old gits and hits with you for another week. I think, as you said, David, the only thing that's going to make a difference to the planet is if we all individually take action in our own lifetimes, well, in I our can, own homes, in our own way we live our life. I can come in with that because I myself, funny, funny you should say that, but I did actually spend some time in this last week going through some of my clothes and uh, going through some some of the wardrobe, I've got still a lot more to do, but I've got two bags of things um, to go, first of all, stuff that can go to the charity shop and, and be recycled that way. And so, some is even brand new with the tag on still, that's never been worn, just don't like it anymore. Also, looking at your list, it says buy second hand. Yeah. Yeah, vintage, I've been doing that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but recycling and buying second hand is really, really important because there's this thing that we've been kind of conned into thinking it must be brand new and shiny, right? But there is so much stuff, and that's from jackets, all sorts of kinds of stuff, and, and trainers, you think to yourself, do you know what? What I don't want, somebody else might want. That doesn't make it, um, you know, somehow kind of like second rate. It just means, do you know what? These things can go to use, and vice versa. It's not just me giving away stuff. I would rather have stuff that someone else is going to say, do you know what? I could use that if you don't want it. I'm taking to the charity shop. And then the things you, that I don't want to pass over to the charity shop, I've actually put in a separate bag and put into what actually it's, it's the local um, helicopter, um, you know, the, uh, the air ambulance. And they've got a big one round by me. Um, and I just put all the stuff in. You just put all the stuff that needs recycling. Well, they come and collect it in the helicopter. They, they, they? Yeah, they come. Not, not in the helicopter, but they do come round. They do come round and collect it. So all your old shoes, your old clothes, and stuff like that. It's got holes in and stuff like that. They take it away yeah. and, and they recycle it. The joke is though, like back like nineties, eighties, nineties. My dad used to go to the secondhand shops and buy clothes, right? Yeah. And like we used to all rip it out of him when we were younger, like yeah. as you do. And now do you know it's trendy, I mean? isn't it? And now, bro, yeah, I go secondhand. Yeah. So it's like full circle, isn't it? Bristol Energy Network's a community energy organisation, so we're interested in all things energy to do with the community. So um, whether that's from helping people find ways to reduce their energy use and reduce their bills. Uh, I mean, it's obviously it's a real concern on everyone's minds at the moment because um, not only do we want to stay warm, but we need to be able to afford our bills, which is a serious issue at the moment with the with the prices skyrocketing. So your absolute first step is draft proofing find those drafts everybody knows where they are in their home generally you know you know that little cold corner or the window that's particularly bad everyone sort of knows which one it is for me it was always my front door my old front door with all the holes in the round um so it's finding those drafts and finding ways to block them up so like i had a big heavy curtain that i got from the charity shop put that behind my front door made a huge difference the old uh, old-fashioned snakes and sausage dogs that sausage that go on the bottom—they're yes. absolutely brilliant. Yes. They really, really work because it's about as well. It's not just stopping the cold air coming in, but if you're blocking the drafts, what well, if you have drafts? You're paying to warm your home, get it nice and comfortable, and we know how much we're paying at the moment. If there's a, if there's a draft, then it's just sucking all that hot air straight outside and putting cold air back in for you to pay to warm again. Yeah. That's so funny. Do you know? I hadn't. I don't think I've seen a draft excluder for so long mm. maybe that's maybe we need to kind of bring those back with a plum 
Absolutely. Mm-hmm. What else can people so, do? Um, especially around windows um, and floorboards and skirting boards, you want to find those gaps and fill them up with sealant. You know, uh, plug the gaps, you caulk them, you sealant and plug those gaps. And on windows, do you know this squishy insulation tape you can get from the DIY store? Mm-hmm. You can get it from anywhere these days. Um, that squishy tape goes on the inside of your frame. So when you pull your window shut, it sucks it in and keeps a nice, keeps the, the cold air out. When it comes to heating, you know, if I was going out at night, sometimes you forget to do it. So I'd walk out and not even bother about it. And the heating would be on and keeping the house warm and there'd be no one there. But now, if I'm going, I do make a point. If I'm going out in the evening, I will actually switch the central heating off. We never had any heating either, so... We well, you, you haven't got heating in your house now? Well, no. Because your Mrs Rods is the heating police, you're not allowed to put it on. That is by choice, to be honest. <laughs> And you know little things, using a drying rack instead of a dryer, uh, shorter showers, turning off the water while you brush your teeth. You know that habit is where you leave the water on while you're brushing your teeth, walk up and you think, what are you doing? And I've done that and I still do that sometimes. And you know the one that's really got me up in the kitchen up in uh, Eastern Community Centre? It just says that um, kettles are electricity power vampires, right? They suck up power. So when you're making a cup of tea or a cup of coffee... Just fill the kettle up with what you need. And guess what well, Guess what the payback is? You don't have to stand there for three minutes and wait for the kettle. If you've just got one mug's worth of water in the kettle, it literally takes 30 seconds and you've got your drink. Isn't there a way we can harness bicycle power? <laughs> to, do you know what I mean? Like, like I, I could see all my neighbours sharing one bike that generated power for the street. People do, don't they? Round my, the clock, yeah, you know? Yeah, no, my... Um, <laughs> my daughter's boyfriend is a DJ and he's done a few sets that have been powered by people on bikes yeah I love that so you know they dance and then they get on a bike for a while yeah yeah it's fantastic Coldplay did a massive gig exactly using bike power didn't they and people on the dance floor the dance floor apparently powers and especially Um, especially like gyms I mean they have spin class yeah, and so you think, come on, look at all this energy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the gyms. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Should be generating their own lights and sound. You're listening to Love and Science on BCFM Radio. Hi everyone, I'm Rebecca Landon and I'm very happy to be joined today by wildlife filmmaker and author of an anthology of aquatic life, Sam Hume. Welcome Sam. Why are aquatic animals so cool? I think aquatic animals are so cool because they're so unfamiliar and so unlike us in lots of ways. They could literally be or might as well be from another planet because they've just evolved for a totally alien world, whether that's life in streams where you're living in a permanent current and sometimes your streams might dry out completely other times they might flood uh, other times they might freeze and all the time you're in this kind of floating medium where food can be incredibly sparse and they're facing just the most extreme conditions that you've got this incredible array of evolutionary tactics that are just fascinating and so alien and so cool i can completely see what you mean because i think we can all imagine to some extent, what it might be to live in woodland or to live in a garden or, I don't know, um, grasslands. But I personally can't even hold my breath for longer than about 10 seconds. So the thought that my entire world and my entire existence would be underwater is actually quite mind-blowing. Every time we go deep in submersibles, um, you come back with new species, new bits of behaviour and not kind of niche little things either. There was a, a trip to the bottom of the Weddell Sea in Antarctica 
um, just last year, and they came across this enormous colony of ice fish, a big ice fish nursery, about 60 million animals. So a huge, huge event and huge kind of spawning behaviour that just was unknown because it's incredibly hard to get to. I think more people have walked on the moon than have been down to the bottom of the sea. So um, it's, yeah... An incredible place and, and again, totally alien. I mean, the crushing pressure at the bottom of the sea is enormous and it's pitch black. A lot of the time, you're entirely dependent on um, what's called marine snow, which is poo and bits of food and and dead things that are filtered down from the surface above. And because we sort of take it for granted, but up here, the sun is our, our main source of energy, really, which gets filtered through the food chain. But down there, away from the sun, you've got to think on your feet. And one of the more interesting things I came across was um, carnivorous sponges that will actively sort of hunt prey and uh, they'll sort of cast nets or some have fishing lines with hooks and they'll then sort of eat krill and things like that because things like plants and algae and things that we think of as quite easy to get hold of are just impossible down there. So uh, often it's beast on beast. Um, Casey, you're not very funny. So Casey, her suggestion to save the planet is for us to bathe together. Not me and Casey, me well, and you. Me and you. Yeah, so Pat and Roddy, so, so why doesn't everyone have... But actually, Casey, you might be being facetious or sarcastic or whatever, right? Or it might be your fantasy, I'm not quite sure. However, it's not a bad idea. So if you're in, in the fam and that, you know, um, uh, dad, son, mother, daughter, whatever, is that... Um, use the same bath water if the kids uh, are bathing but that's like the kids is it no but you say but that's like some people will go oh, i'm not doing that and then they'll empty a big bath and then they'll use more water more water um sometimes you can use water from the bath for example um for, for other stuff to clean other stuff or you can just use washing up water stuff to water the grass i don't know but but you can recycle stuff without wasting resources wasting electricity all that kind of stuff is that not what we used to do back in the 80s though yes it is so like after my dad had had a bath i used to jump in the bath after well, him, exactly with like with his like shaving hair all floating on the top oh, me. <laughs> but it's true like i bet you had to bath with your brothers yeah yeah so yeah, like yeah, what's, what's changed why has it gone i don't know maybe because water's more abundant bristol would never be the first place that springs to mind when it comes to casting a fly for wild brown trout so when pete and john discovered in their local stream the trim uh was home to the brown trout, they began to wonder, could brown trout be in other rivers in our city of Bristol? So their podcast, which is called The Fishtolian, documents their search throughout Bristol for the elusive, or maybe not so elusive, brown trout. Um, Pete had been involved with um, an organisation called Trout and the Trim, mm. um, and that's kind of a, a cooperation between several kind of eco groups in that area yeah there's uh, sustainable south mead uh, there's sea uh, mills and coondingle climate action there's friends of Badox wood there's groups up and down the hazelbrook and the trim and they've all been working to take rubbish out of the river and uh, really improve it and um under the banner of trout in the trim uh, and i helped out on ooh, uh, half a dozen or so probably probably a few more uh, river cleaning events uh, before I was sort of prompted to think, well, how do they know? Because they were trying to get the river so clean you could have trout back. Mm. And it made me wonder, well, you know, how do they know there aren't any in here? So, um, so uh, basically, we bought a pint of maggots. 
and went oh, down early one morning. <laughs> yeah. Oh, as you do. <laughs> put it to the test. Put it to the test. And uh, if, you, if you go to our Instagram page, at the Fistolian, you'll see a picture of Pete and with his wide eyes and wonder, you know, a big smile. Yeah, it's not, which it's is, not a complimentary picture. It's not, but it just sums up the moment perfectly because, you know, I grew up in Bristol and spent, you know, my childhood yeah. next to the trim, you know. like My, my dad was from... Avonmouth and Hembury. Yeah. And that's where we'd go on a Sunday afternoon or a Saturday afternoon. And I, you know, right through my life, it's been running through like a, a kind of vein through my life. And I never have thought there were any fish, let alone any trout. So that moment was just like a kind of BC AD moment, really. It was incredible. So is brown trout an indicator of the health of the river? Yeah, very much so. They're, they're the canary in the coal mine to some extent. Um, if, you've, if you've got a healthy population of brown trout, then your river is in a reasonable place, certainly. Although I would say, you know, one of the things, the reasons we were surprised about um, the trout and the trim were, was the amount of sewage that is regularly discharged into that river. Um, and it was, uh, it was kind of gave us a bit of hope that the trout could tolerate that. Mm-hmm. And actually their food sources, like the bugs in the river, could tolerate that to some degree. Yeah. But, you know, we just imagined, it sparked our imagination to how well they the populations would thrive if the rivers were actually clean and not full of you know i'm always paper and feces you mentioned earlier the uh charity or the organ community group trout in the trim and they often post what they're dredging out of dredging out of the river and i'm absolutely staggered at the frequency and the amount of rubbish that Mm. is being pulled out of the trim from trolleys to handbags to uh, you know beer bottles everything yes. and it is non i mean they post every week just about and every week there is a haul yeah mm. yeah I, I spoke to alex who's sort of the leading light in trap and the trim uh and um spoke to him last week after the the latest river clean when we got another motorbike um he's been keeping a sort of loose tally and we've had we've had over 50 tons of rubbish out of the river now um, well, I think coming up for a dozen motorbikes, uh, innumerable push bikes, car batteries, builders' rubble, carpets. Carpets are horrible because they've got plastic underlay, yeah. and it all gradually breaks down into smaller and smaller bits. Right. So, you know, at a level, the community through all the different groups up and down the river is doing a great job cleaning it up. The um, as John said, the, the problem is you really need the water quality better, and. Um, the stats that the Rivers Trust have pulled together from all the water companies show that there were over 3,000 separate releases of sewage in Bristol last year alone. So that's mm. over 7,000 hours. And um, that's, that's an absolute shocker. You can actually get that data split by constituencies. Here you can see most of that is in Bristol Northwest. So, um, yeah. uh, you know, um, Darren Jones, um, step up, please. You need to be putting a bit of pressure on someone. You only have to go down to the trim after some rainfall, and you can smell that you can smell that the sewage has been in it. Oh. So we don't wear our best waders when we, when no. we visit the rivers That's of scary. Bristol. Yeah. Marlon, what do you think about that? Because you like to swim in our rivers, don't you? Sometimes. Well, what does that say about? Well, I know for a fact there's oh. sewage in there because every time me and my mates go down, one of us catches a new disease, a brand new disease. Really? And we just end up knocked out sick for the rest of the week. Yeah. But it doesn't stop us going again. I mean, we'll repeat the same thing. Rinse and repeat. <laughs> I, I like I, it. When I was at college, I did a little bit of rowing. Yeah. And um, there was one time I was sculling, which is a 
yeah, when you're on your own in the boat. Oh yeah. And I flipped it. Oh. And, and I took a good, you know, yeah, a good swallow of the river, <laughs> the river weir, and um, yeah, I was I was ill as a dog for a while after that. <laughs> you're listening to a special edition of One Love One Planet, with highlights from BCFM's Our Earth Week. One of the shoots we were hoping to film for A Year on Planet Earth was uh, harp seals. That these incredibly adorable, very cute, fluffy white seals that are born on sea ice uh, off the coast of eastern Canada. And the reason they're born on the sea ice is to keep them as far away from polar bears as possible. Uh, so they wait until the ice is at its most southerly and then they pup on the sea ice. And it's a very narrow window um, before the ice begins to melt again. And particularly with climate change, a lot of the seals, seal pups are drowning, actually, sadly. The ice will melt too quickly and the seal pups will drown or um, or the seals just won't give birth at all. And uh, there's a creature in my book called the um, <laughs> scaly foot gastropod, uh, which has a much more exciting name of volcano snail. And it lives on um, undersea volcanoes and undersea seamounts. And it's such a sort of hazardous environment with really superheated water and a sort of noxious cocktail of chemicals coming straight out of the centre of the earth and no light, not much really for a snail to eat, you'd have thought. But it has partnered up with a couple of different kinds of bacteria down there, um, one of which can process the chemicals to effectively create food for the snail and another one um, which takes iron out of the water and clads it in a suit of armour in in chainmail. So it's got a a shell made entirely of iron and um, its foot sort of has these plates of iron sheeting, which then protects it from um, crabs and uh, and other things down on the volcano. And I mean, you couldn't really ask for a more hostile environment (laughs) than, you know, water that can reach, I think, sort of thousands of degrees centigrade. And yeah, toxic chemicals, extreme pressure, no light, and yet life still thrives there. So it sort of gives me a little bit of hope that um, even though it's very easy and, to be honest, important to be a little bit doom and gloom about the state of the natural world, I think we will recover and adapt and, and try and roll with the punches. doing with eco-anxiety that seems to me quite important do you want to tell us about that yeah so I came across that because I'm part of um, the Avon schools eco network which is sort of a collection of students across this area and that was where that opportunity was sort of brought to me to go on some training with the charity force of nature and as part of that it was sort of looking at eco-anxiety which I didn't realize was a thing and I didn't realize that I could identify with that feeling Um, and it's sort of the feeling of like sort of an overwhelming feeling of anxiousness about the um, climate emergency and I learned about how much it does affect young people and sort of the focus of the training was to learn how you can turn sort of these feelings of uncertainty and it's quite depressing really when you read a lot of the stuff about eco-anxiety but it was a lot about turning this sort of anxiety into action and not letting it get you down and thinking I can't do anything to solve this sort of learning ways which you can channel that anxiety and passion that you feel about the environment into taking like action and activism. Hello it's Linda Aspie here welcome to day three of our mini series on top tips to help you with climate anxiety. Today I want to talk about gratitude. 
Gratitude is something that we can cultivate even when times are tough and even when we don't feel like we have very much of anything to feel grateful for. There's lots of research to show that people around the world who are apparently the most poor in material terms are actually the happiest and they survive difficult times more readily than perhaps others do who have all this material stuff. Now, I'm saying this from an acknowledged position of being massively privileged myself. I'm white, I've got a roof over my head, I have food in my cupboard. And I know that not everybody listening to this will feel that privilege and, and have that in the same way. So I really don't want to belittle your life and your experiences by saying, oh, just be, just be cheerful and you'll be fine. It's not what gratitude is about at all. It's about making a deliberate attempt to strengthen yourself by looking for the things and acknowledging the things that are good in your life. And they can be tiny, from a, the smile of a newborn baby to a butterfly's zooming past your house to a, a, a kind word from a stranger. So it means it's an intentional thing. And what gratitude is, is an antidote to the society that we're in in the, U- in the world right now, in many parts of the world, where we're stuck in consumerism. And the message has been is you're not enough. You don't have enough. You need more. So we fill those vacuums with buying stuff, with more clothes, more toys, more everything. Or we're not enough in some way. We're not tall enough, clever enough, thin enough, all of those things. Gratitude is the antidote to that. So I'd invite you at the end of every day or during the day, stop at moments during the day when you find yourself feeling worried. Just stop yourself and think, okay, what have I got in my life that I'm grateful for? Or what's happened to me today that I could find a little little note of reassurance and gratitude for? And if you wish to, write it down. And then you'll be collecting a little series of things that you feel grateful for. And you can use those to reflect back on and acknowledge when times are tough. It's also a great way of starting meetings, introduce people, introduce themselves and then just go around the room and say, what's one thing you're grateful for that's happened in the last week or one thing you're grateful for in your life? You'll learn an awful lot about what's important to people. One nation, one world on Bristol's BCFM 93.2. Inclusive radio for Bristol. Very pleased to welcome Steve Clark back into the studio from the Air- Bristol Airport Action Network. Um, the airport is a very large business owned by a Canadian pension fund, Ontario Teachers Pension Plan, mm. one of the largest pension plans in the world. So they don't really care about local people, frankly. That's the conclusion we've come to. They're, they're interested in growth and big business and profits. We're interested, we're not trying to close Bristol Airport, but we're interested in sustainable growth. Mm. And we don't think sustainable growth includes the growth of airports. Um, um, I just wanted to ask a, a question, Steve. Less people are flying. So why were the airport thinking? I mean, I know obviously their expansion plans probably started some years ago. But why do they think it's a good idea if less people are actually physically flying? I think what they're trying to do, their plan, because they've got plans, this is up to 12 million, they've got pla- published plans to go up to 20 million. I think what they're going to try and do is cannibalise all the passengers from Exeter Airport and Cardiff Expert okay. Airport and all those other places <coughs> and, and become a very large regional hub. I mean, they're the ninth largest airport in the UK now, the largest without a rail link, you know, which is, again, it's, a, it's madness mm. from a sustainability point of view. Yeah. But I just think, Um, I don't know really why they want to expand. It doesn't make sense to me either.
For every one tourist who flies into Bristol using Bristol Airport, there's half a dozen who fly out and spend their money elsewhere. So an airport is like a sort of black hole of money disappearing. What an interesting point. Yeah, and yeah. you never hear that from the no, airport, do you? No, of course you, you don't. <laughs> there's less business travel, people are using Zoom, mm. uh, and there's less people flying. So, um, I, so I don't really know. Mm. <laughs> Perhaps you should ring them and ask them. <laughs> I'll try that. <laughs> I mean, this is a very complex and significant case. There's 19 other airports queuing up behind Bristol to expand, so this is a very right. significant case. So the judge will take his time, and there's a lot of complex legal arguments, it could be two weeks, it could be two months, you know, it's going to be a while before the decision. Really and it is. all rests on the decision of the judge, is it just that one individual? It's just that one judge, yeah. Wow. Who has to, has to make a decision whether what the decision <coughs> the planning inspectorate came to, not whether that decision was right or wrong, but whether the process that was used to get to that decision was right. Right, in the previous hour, we showed you that climate change was nothing new and um, warnings were being put out to politicians in the 50s. Taking us forward now to the 80s, did the politicians do anything? Right now, there are a number of scientists who are beginning to argue that the CO2 signal, if you will, is already detected. For example, if you look at the mean temperature of the globe in the last 30 years, it's something like three three-tenths of a degree or so warmer than the mean temperature of the globe perhaps a century ago. Most scientists involved in this problem agree that the temperature will rise on average some two degrees centigrade in the next century, that is, nearly four degrees Fahrenheit. That doesn't sound much. Remember, there was a time when the world was only five degrees centigrade colder during the Ice Age, when the ice sheet reached Bristol. So uh, a really good way of checking out how healthy a river is is to um, get down into the, um, the riverbed, um, kick around in the, the pebbles and the stones uh, with, a, with a net and then see what you've got. And that's really, a, in essence, what Riverfly does. Um, for river fly samples, you do it for a three-minute period and you've then got some guidance notes to help you identify the types of bugs you've got. And the, the numbers of the different types and the, the diversity tells you how healthy it is. It's very simple. Uh, you've got thousands of people doing this right across the country, uh, but um, there's something called the three Ps, which everyone, all our listeners, can do at home. Uh, and it's that um, you sh must only put poo, pee and paper down the U-bend, anything else uh, will cause blockages. And blockages then lead to sewage you know, spilling out and going into the rivers. Right. So just remember the three Ps, poopy paper. If it isn't <laughs> one of those, it doesn't go down the toilet. Remember oh. that, Marlon? Sure. Poopy paper. <laughs> I'll remember that next time I'm using wet wipes. And the other thing to mention in, in connection with that is also the drains, you know, like gutter drains. Yeah. They all go to the same place. So don't be tempted to pour, you know, leftover white spirit or paint or oil because that's all going straight into the river as well, you know. So we yeah. really have to think about what we pour away and dispose of it properly. You know, all the recycling centres at Avon Mouthworth, they'll take those and dispose of them properly. And, yeah. you know, just don't be tempted to pour them down the drain because they're going straight into the river. So how could I or listeners experience aquatic life in our own back gardens or in the local area? Um, what kind of ideas can you give us? 
Well, it's interesting. I think our local area is really in the spotlight at the moment. There's a lot of talk about UK's river quality and, and things like that. And I don't know if you've come across Surfers Against Sewage, which is a fantastic group trying to keep our beaches clean. But the easiest thing uh, is probably to build a little pond. And you don't even need to have a garden for that. You could build a little uh, sort of window box with a little water feature. Um, because it's amazing how animals can find water and proliferate and um, and how important those water sources are. And as I say, something as humble as a garden pond, you might not think of as an extreme environment. But actually with this dry summer we've just had, animals have lost so many water sources. And I'm sure a lot of life cycles and, and breeding populations will have lost whole generations perhaps. And something as simple as a, a pond in an old washing up tub um, will be just fine. And if you go onto the RSPB or Wildlife Trust websites, they've got sort of how-tos on how to build garden ponds. And you'll quite quickly find, probably the first thing you might find, a mosquito larvae, and then sometimes little Daphnia, water fleas. And and you'll be amazed at suddenly how birds come to visit and they're often carrying little larvae of other things and dragonflies, frogs, newts, semaphore flies, which is these amazing flies that have little sort of flag patterns on their wings. Before you know it, you know, you'll have made a little home for hundreds of species, if not thousands, all in a tiny space. I mean, if you've got the space, go big. Why not? But um, but you really don't need to have a big space to make a huge, huge impact. Um, have you had any unusual pets yourself, either aquatic or otherwise? Um, I have uh, had all sorts. One of my more unusual recent pets was um, a little pond of tadpole shrimp. And it was amazing to raise these little dinosaurs in our house. <laughs> and then try and film them afterwards as they went off to go and hunt mosquito larvae. And actually, I have had a real fondness for tortoises recently. And in fact, I had a tortoise called Colin that I used to take for walks in the uh, Royal Physics Garden in in Bristol. And uh, he loved aquatic life so much that he decided he wanted to be a turtle one day and made a beeline for the pond (laughs) there and uh, climbed out onto the reeds and fell into the water. But I managed to scoop him back out and he was none the worse for it. I used to have this horse head grasshopper called Harriet, uh, which looks like a stick insect with a horse's head glued on. They're the most amazing looking things and really charming. And they like to be high up. So she would come to the office with me and climb on top of my head. But she didn't make many friends for herself because she would do these little poos that looked a little bit like a chocolate sprinkle. And sure enough, one of my colleagues mistook them for chocolate sprinkles (laughs) and quickly realised they were not. (laughs) This is your award-winning BCFM, BCFM on 93.2, 24 hours a day. After this next song, we're going to be talking to Jess Gitcham, who is from the Bristol Energy Cooperative. You could think of us a bit like a renewable energy developer because we are installing, well, so far it's been largely solar projects, so solar PV, um, solar panels on top of rooftops. Um, We've got two solar farms. Um, But what's different about the way we work is uh, we're using energy as a force for good. And um, a bit like that clip you played earlier, it's really important to put people at the heart of it. Mm. And with energy, it's something we feel quite uh, sort of distant from. Like we we are all consumers of it, but um, changing that to be a sort of more engaged and proactive process. So the ways that we do that um, are, first of all, you can financially invest in the cooperative. That means that you... Uh, become a shareholder you get a stake in our energy project so you get a return on that investment Mm -hmm. Um, there's the other end of it where people might uh, locally can benefit from um, our scheme so by 
installing solar um, solar panels, we uh, you know we receive a revenue for that. We get an income. Um, but we uh, channel some of that money every year into community initiatives here in mm. Bristol through our megawatt energy grant fund. So, um, yeah, we're we're providing grants to local community groups, uh, which is a really fantastic way to use yeah, renewable amazing. energy. There's actually a, re- a really good statistic that um, the S- Centre for Sustainable Energy, um, that they, they ran some research on this. Uh, it was a couple of years ago now, but um, they identified that rooftops across Bristol have the potential for 500 megawatts of financially viable solar, but only around 30 megawatts have been installed so far, which is only 6%. And people can invest anything from £100 to £100,000. So it's a real big scale, you know, of of people that want to get involved in those projects. The share offer, um, it actually closed in June, um, but it attracted just over 400 investors um so there's a lot lot of people that wanted yeah. to be part of that and yeah. that going back to that point about getting people involved and engaged mm. proactively it, it for them it, it changes that relationship battery storage is a, an important part of mm. the way that you know our energy system is going to work mm. you know yes mm. solar and wind are, are fantastic but they don't always run at the same time we have to have that flexibility mm. batteries provide that um so there's a project here in bristol that we're involved in um and yet again we'll get an income from that it's something that the grid needs so we'll you know we'll be paid for that um so it's it's, it's really exciting it's good and we really look forward to talking about it a bit more european City cities heating like... system what is that so it's basically a network of pipes that we're building under the city that um transfer hot water around the city so um and then it, so on hang this, on so hot water yeah so, but the hot water's going from where to where so so it's a network of pipes and um it's connected to mainly uh office buildings at the moment and new buildings that are being built around the city center um the source of the heat can can vary so um one of the sources for, of heat at the moment is a, a new piece of infrastructure we've built it's cost us seven million pounds and it's uh the largest water source heat pump in in the country. Oh, yes, I saw this. So that's yeah. gone into Castle Park. What it means is each each um, building doesn't need its own plant or gas boiler. They're taking heat from this communal system, citywide system. So it's a lot more efficient. Mm. The water source heat pumps completely zero carbon. Um, and the plan is with this investment from one of the partners that's coming in with us is Vattenfall, who are the Swedish state energy company. So they're planning to come into the city to build this network out right across the city um, and take heat heat from um, sources of heat that you'd be really surprised at, like um, industrial processes in Avonmouth. At the moment, that heat just gets wasted. It goes into the atmosphere. What they can do is tap that heat and use it to generate heat for this communal communal system. So um, and we've worked out we probably need about 65,000 connections buildings to be wow. connected to that system wow. if we're going to make that 2030 Amazing. carbon neutrality um, um, objective I mean this is the positive side of yeah. um, what we yeah. need to do about because cli- we talk about the investment what, what what it really means is it's jobs yeah and we've and we know we need we we need um, in the region I think it's 50,000 jobs there are something called the minimum energy efficiency standards that are in place for landlords and that landlords are supposed to adhere to. And, you know, we're really, really trying to encourage landlords to to adhere to those because um, I know, you know, from chatting to people out in the community, a lot of people 
are in cold, drafty homes that they rent, and they're paying a lot of money in Bristol to be renting a cold home, um, which they then have to now pay absolutely through the nose for their energy to heat it. Um, so, I, I, and I know everyone's relationship with their landlord is different, and some are really, really tricky, but I would really, really suggest um, approaching landlords if you do have a cold home and just making the suggestion that there, there are these minimum energy efficiency standards. Um, the, house is, the, the house or flat is supposed to be up to a certain level, and are there changes that the, the landlord could make to make it more comfortable to be at home? Um, also, just want to pop in there the energy um, bill support scheme so this is the money that the government is giving everybody absolutely everybody oh, yeah yeah the 400 pounds? 400 pounds right. so between yes. october and march we're all going to receive 400 pounds if you pay by direct debit or you have a smart prepayment meter you'll automatically get that every month so it's 66 pounds mm -hmm. and then 67 um straight onto your um credited to your energy account so you'll be getting that every month if you pay by key your card meter so the more old-fashioned mm -hmm. prepayment meters then your energy company will be sending you vouchers through the post <sighs> and this is a real concern of mine and i really really want to spread the word far and wide if you mm -hmm. use a key your card meter if your friends or your family do uh, someone at work please 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 get them to check their post because firstly the letters just look really boring like and they look like bills so I can completely understand them being popped to the side and not opened um, but there's a, a barcode on there which you need to take down to either the post take to your post office um, some of them say your your prepay your pay point most of them are post office with some ID to get your money because everyone's entitled to that money and everyone needs that money but I'm really concerned and of course there's like postal strikes as well so you know yeah. some of it might be delayed so it's really important to check your post and find that money um, but the other reason I mentioned that is that if you pay for rent and your bills are included you are still supposed to get that money via your landlord so you need to have a um, what's frustrating is they haven't explained the mechanism with, by which that should happen so there isn't some kind of set way that that should happen but again it's to mention to the landlord my energy bill support money mm. you are due 400 pounds between October to March that is supposed to go to residents so it's not supposed to be for landlords it is supposed to be for residents even if their bills are included um, because it's it's a cost in a lot of ways it's a cost of living support money yeah. in Sumatra filming Sumatran rhinos which are now so endangered in the wild that you can almost only film them at this one sanctuary where they're trying to um, increase the population and they're the most remarkable rhino um, they're sort of pinky red colour I mean similar actually colour to orangutans and quite hairy again similar to orangutans whilst most rhinos you think of as being really big and armoured they're quite sort of little and fleshy rhinos of the forest and they've got this incredibly soulful haunting call that's more like a humpback whale song it's a sort of whistle that can carry through forests very well. And I had just become a father, I think, when I filmed them last. And um, I was just really struck that this is the most extraordinary animal I think I've ever seen. And almost certainly my daughters will never see them. And it was incredibly heartbreaking. And they're doing fantastic work to protect the rhinos and, and having some success with um, with increasing their numbers. But I do worry if they're past, past that sort of minimum threshold where there isn't enough genetic diversity there. And the threats that force them into these sanctuaries are still very much there. So that was very um, poignant.
and certainly some slightly teary moments. Again, the work being done is second to none. And I really hope I'm wrong. So one of the creatures I've featured in, um, in my book, An Anthology of Aquatic Life, is the flying squid, which I think is probably one of the coolest animals in the world that I've only come across recently and tried in vain to film once. No one's filmed it before, but they're like mini bottle rockets. If there's a predator like dolphins or tuna, they can squirt themselves out of the water by squeezing their mantle and jetting themselves up into the air. And then they flatten their tentacles into wings and can glide for um, tens of metres, if not even 100 metres, I think, um, to get away. Uh, but then they're open to aerial predators like booby birds, brown boobies. So um, then they have to flap their tentacles down to form an air break and splash back into the water and hope that dolphins and tuna aren't there. So I think it'll make an incredible sequence, but be incredibly hard. <laughs> so I'd love to catch that one day. That's all for um, this special edition of One Love, One Planet. See you next week. Yes.